In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, we begin to get a feel for the complicated nature of Paul's relationship to the saints of that city as he instructs them in how to tell true messengers from false the benefits of godly sorrow and the importance of being reconciled to God. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. Today's episode is 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7. Be ye reconciled to God. Before we begin, just like to say, as always, if you'd like to email the program, send me email at gt at Feel free to ask a question about that week's lesson, which I will respond as be- to as best I can, or about any question in life, and I will attempt to answer it with some response from the Holy Scriptures, whether it be the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl Great Price, or perhaps some talk from General Conference. And also, please remember, if you enjoy the program, your five-star ratings on iTunes and your reviews help others to find us and help us increase our listenership, and they're much appreciated. So I'm excited to talk about 2 Corinthians. Uh, this is such an interesting letter that I've never really gotten to know before. Um, and when I said that we get to we start to get a feel for the complicated nature of Paul's relationship with the Corinthians uh, in the intro, what I meant was that we we only have two of Paul's letters to the Corinthians, but right in as I mentioned when we discussed uh, the first part of First Corinthians, right in the in the book of First Corinthians, we learn about another letter that Paul has already sent. So first thing that happened is Paul visited them and he spent eighteen months living there, and then he left. He lived probably when he was living in Ephesus. He sent a letter to them, and this is referred to, this letter is referred to, it's not, it's not the first epistle to the Corinthians. Instead, it's a letter referred to in the first epistle, what we call the first epistle to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 5, verse 9. Then Paul gets back a report that they're, they're divided, there's contentions. Uh, you remember a lot of things that Paul was addressing in his first epistle to the Corinthians that we have in the Bible, he was addressing reports of their uh, contentions and dissensions among them. So then he wrote that letter to respond. Now, here in the book of 2 Corinthians, or the second epistle to the Corinthians, we have an account of a, of a painful visit right at the start of, the, of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And then we also have an account in chapter 1 and chapter 7, of another letter that Paul sent, and this is often referred to as the letter of tears. So the first epistle that Paul sent is often called the warning letter, and then the third epistle that Paul sent is often called the letter of tears. And therefore, the, the, what we call first and second Corinthians are actually the possibly the second and fourth letters that he would have sent. Then Paul visited them again, uh, a, a second time, and then he visited them a third time, possibly when he wrote the, well, we assume that he visited them a third time when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, because at the end of the book of Romans, he actually sends salutations from a lot of the members of Corinth that we know about from the book of Acts, chapter 18, and therefore we assume that was written from 
from Corinth, and we and we know that it wasn't written from his earlier visits, and therefore we know that Paul was in and out of Corinth, constantly writing to Corinth, constantly hearing about Corinth, constantly sending his missionary companions or his associates to Corinth and hearing about them, weeping for them, crying for them, praying for them. The reason I, I bring this up is it made me, made me think of a, a verse of scripture in the Book of Mormon, and this was a description about how much Lehi cared for his children. This is First uh, Nephi chapter 8, verse 37. And this is describing Lehi uh, exhorting his two oldest sons, Laman and Lemuel, and he's worried about their, the, the state of their eternal souls because they're being disobedient. And uh, he said, it says, He did exhort them then with all the feeling of a tender parent that they would hearken to his words, that perhaps the Lord would be merciful to them and not cast them off. Yea, my father did preach unto them. Now as we read and study Second Corinthians, you're going to get a similar feeling that Paul feels about the church in Corinth. The interesting thing about the book of 2 Corinthians is that Paul spends what would seem to be an inordinate amount of time testifying of his own prophetic calling, of his own faithfulness in keeping what the Lord had called him to do, of his own fitness for his task. And so it's interesting. I've been trying to think about how to reconcile the fact that Paul seems so humble, he always says, I can never boast in anything. I can only boast in Christ. And the fact that he he consistently, throughout the, the first chapters at least, and, and we'll talk a little bit about how he does it in the rest of the book, but I don't want to give away too much of what we're going to talk about next time. Um, but he consistently talks about how fit he is for his task and how important it is that they believe in him. And so I was thinking about that, and I could, the the best analogy that I could draw would be that of parent. And that's what drew me to read that verse in First Nephi, because if, and I know that there are many people who are listening that can identify with this. If you're a parent, and let's say that you have a wayward child, you can't say to your child, all right, I'm going to send another church authority here to testify to you. And so I was, I was reading this, and I'm thinking if, if the Corinthians are having such a hard time receiving counsel from Paul. Why couldn't he just send someone else? Which he did, uh, but why couldn't he turn them over, so to speak, and turn over authority, turn over responsibility for them to someone else? And he couldn't do that, number one, probably because that's who he was called for. Jesus specifically told Paul, you're called, you're the one, you're my apostle who's called to the Gentiles. Secondly, uh, he couldn't do it because he loved them so much. And somebody who can both has authority and responsibility for another and also can't trade that responsibility can best be described as a parent. So I, I imagine there are many people listening who feel like they can totally identify with the way Paul must have felt. And so imagine a wayward child saying, I'm not going to listen to you. I don't like what you're saying. I have my own ideas about how to run my life. And it's important for Paul to establish his own spiritual bona fides to the people listening to him, to say, look, it's really important that you listen to me, not for my sake, for, for heaven's sake. It's not because I care about my own honor, but it is because I happen to know that I am telling you true things and they really will affect your salvation and your progress. And I know that the things that I'm teaching will bring you closer to God if you'll listen to me. This is the general theme of the lesson today. We're going to take it chapter by chapter and point out some of the highlights 
But, but really, that's what's happening here, is that Paul is testifying in, in one way or another, in all of these chapters, he's testifying of, of his own apostolic calling and the importance of the Corinthians humbling themselves and being willing to accept either his rebukes or his advice, his counsel from his hand and apply them in, his, in their lives. Now, right away, Paul begins by talking about the troubles and the afflictions that we feel on behalf of Jesus Christ. So in verses 4 through 7, Paul is talking a lot about how God is comforting us in our troubles so that we can comfort others, but that the sufferings of Christ abound in us. And what that word means is that there's more than enough. So I wanted to point this out a little bit. When he's talking about us, Paul is, uh, is explicitly mentioning the apostles and the other missionaries that are traveling and preaching. He's not talking about all of us as believers. He, so when we, uh, when we hear this word abound, some translations actually translate this as overflow. And I really like that because basically what it says is that Christ had so much suffering that there was enough and to spare. And that if we're willing to be near him, then as they overflow, some of them will travel, be transmitted to us. And later on, we'll, we'll talk, uh, when we discuss chapter 11, we'll talk a lot about what that exactly meant, specifically what that meant. Now, we've read the book of Acts. We read the, the it, this, most of these were events that were chronicled in the book of Acts. We know a lot of the things that Paul suffered, but he mentions even more of them specifically. And they were horrible. I mean, Paul went through so many things. And this is what he's talking about. He's not saying all of us as followers of Christ receive the sufferings of Christ, although we may, right? What he's saying is those who are willing to do what I have done and receive persecution on behalf of being a servant of Christ, then for those people, for us, meaning us, those people, the sufferings of Christ are going to overflow onto us. And therefore, the, the comfort of Christ will also overflow onto us. So the fact that Christ has so much grace in him, the more suffering of his we're willing to receive. As Christ said, uh, rejoice if you are ever persecuted for my name's sake, because so persecuted they, the prophets who came before you. And so Paul is rejoicing in this because he feels like if he's willing to receive the overflow of Christ's suffering, he's also going to be the recipient of the overflow of Christ's comfort. Uh, it's an interesting, I, I like changing that word abound to overflow so that it gets a little more sense of what, what he's actually saying there. So, and then he says, now this applies to you, all the members that we preach to, the members of the church in general, the general population. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. So in other words, it will now overflow from us unto you. And he says this not to glorify himself, but to say, look, I'm really suffering in for your sake by bringing you the gospel and by being willing to travel around and be a preacher. And that idea is reinforced in verse 8. He says, We would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. So something happened to him. We don't know exactly what he's referring to. Something happened to him that made him feel like he was going to die. And as he says in verse 9, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. In other words, we, we'd given up on trusting our, our own ability to get out of this situation. 
and we had entrusted our souls to God and in the resurrection. We knew we were going to die. So then uh, in verse 10, he says, uh, God who raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. So Paul is saying, I owe my life to God. I could have died. I thought I was going to die, but I know God delivered me. I know he is delivering me, and I know he will continue to deliver me. As I was reading this, I thought about a story that came recently to light because of one of the talks of uh, President Russell M. Nelson. He related a story that he's related in the past, but he did it in Spanish. Um, But anyway, he talked about how he was on an airplane, a twin-engine airplane, just a propeller plane, a little little plane that perhaps maybe was a private flight or maybe it was in a smaller country where uh, twin prop planes are in service uh, for public use. And all of a sudden, one of the engines explodes, the propeller stops, oil goes everywhere, burning oil splashes across the wing and onto the side of the plane, and then the plane goes into this dive and a spin. And immediately, he assumes, he concludes that he was going to die. He looks across the aisle. There's a woman who is hysterical in her panic. She is weeping and sobbing and cannot emotionally contain herself. And you can actually find this on YouTube under the title, Men's Hearts Shall Fail Them. And that's a reference to the book of Luke, chapter 21, verses 25 and 26, when Christ is prophesying what will happen before the second, time, the second coming in the end times, um, what shall come. And, he's, and Christ says men's hearts will fail them. There'll be all this panicking. No one will be able to believe that God will save them. And he says the way he felt was that he knew, number one, he had the most precious gift he could ever have, which is the gift of the gospel the knowledge that Jesus Christ loved him and would save him, and the sealing that he had with his spouse. And this was uh, probably when he was still, long before he was president of the church. So Elder Nelson at that time had an experience similar to Elder Paul of olden time when he despaired even of life. He knew he had the sentence of death in himself, that he shouldn't trust in himself, but in God which raiseth the dead. So it's just interesting that our own prophet has had a similar experience to what Paul's relating right here. And he has the same, as he's experiencing that fear, and well, possibly not fear, but as he's experiencing that knowledge, that despairing of life, for lack of a better word, then he immediately, his thoughts go to the hope that he has in Christ. And this is the same thing that happened to Paul. And when Paul says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, meaning I want everyone to know what I felt when I despaired of my life, this is the same reason that Elder Nelson shared this experience with everyone. I want you to know what it's like if you have a hope in Christ when you despair of your life. I'm also recalling a story about, uh, I, I happened to be on my mission when this happened, so I wasn't present and I wasn't able to see it in the news at that time. But there was a time when uh, President Howard W. Hunter, while he was still the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, was giving a talk in the BYU Marriott Center, and a man came up and threatened him with a bomb and held him hostage in front of the crowd, in front of everyone, thousands of people. And eventually someone from the crowd snuck around and tackled him, and uh, President Hunter fell over and they picked him up. A doctor examined him, and he found his blood pressure, his pulse to be totally normal. And 
President Hunter later described his attitude that he wasn't worried about death. He, he absolutely knew that whenever his reunion with God would come, that he was ready for it. And the doctor said that that reaction, his the state of his body and the state of his mind was that of someone who, for whom death held absolutely no terror. So when, uh, when Paul says, I would not have you ignorant, I think what he means is, I know that this is a, a very beneficial message for me to tell you about, that when I'm suffering in the cause of Christ and I have hope, it's going to be helpful for you to see that. And that helpfulness continues today, the overflowing nature of those who are traveling the world and receiving the, the suffering, the overflowing of the suffering of Christ, and therefore the overflowing of the comfort of Christ. We can receive that overflowing of that comfort as it comes from Christ to them and from then to us. Now in chapter 2, we get some indication of the fact that Paul had once visited Corinth in heaviness. We can assume that this is between the two epistles that we have. Uh, And he didn't want to go a second time unto them in heaviness. So he made one visit, but then he forbore to make a second visit in heaviness, meaning while they were still in the process of repentance, he didn't want to go and rebuke them again. And then in verse 4, he mentions, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. So that's why this letter is called the letter of tears. It doesn't seem to be describing the letter we have as 1 Corinthians, which is why most scholars assume that that there's another missing letter that we, we don't have. And in total, at least four letters Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And then Paul describes... Uh, for, in, for several verses, Paul describes someone who appears to be a false messenger to the Corinthians. And this is an ongoing theme throughout this, uh, in a, this epistle, which is someone has come and caused grief, and sufficient to this man is the punishment which was inflicted of many. Paul is admonishing them to, once this person has repented, that, that they should forgive him with their whole heart. Now, Uh, Later on, he talks about different kinds of teachers. This is just one example of somebody who who caused grief to the Corinthians in a way that we're not exactly sure what happened. But we do understand that in ancient times as well as modern, when someone, even when someone has transgressed the faith publicly, that when they openly repent, the, the counsel of the leaders of the church is often to receive them with open arms and with love. Joseph Smith manifested this kind of attitude on many occasions for those who denounced him and who left the church publicly and attempted to spread vicious rumors about him and then later returned. He would always receive them with open arms. That's just one more of the many parallels that exist between Paul and Joseph Smith. And talking about this this person who gave great offense to the church gives Paul an opportunity to describe uh, himself and others who are true ministers of Christ. In verse 14, we have, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Now this is interesting when it says, causeth us to triumph. Actually, what, uh, what that word means, it's, if you go to the Greek word, what it means is that Christ is the the actual sense, the connotation of this word is that Christ is leading captives in a victory procession. And what Paul is saying is, we are all slaves of Christ. 
we're not the important ones. We, we are just the servants who are being led and even put, we're, as conquered people, we are being put on display. It is, it is as though Christ has come through our countries and conquered all of us, and then now is leading us, the apostles. He's leading us as his conquered people, showing everyone that he is the victor. We are happy to point to Christ as the king, and we are but his lowly servants, the slaves of Christ, in his victory procession. So read that verse again with that knowledge. Thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Now the savor can also mean the scent. It can mean the taste or the scent. So by his servants that he has conquered, Christ is willing to send forth this this smell, this sweet smell of salvation. Uh, This is such poetic language, it's beautiful. Uh, In verse 15, Paul continues that, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved, and in them that perish to the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. So this, this savor, this scent, this aroma of the salvation of Christ, the doctrine of Christ, to those who are not willing to receive it, it smells like death. And to those who are, it's this sweet, life-giving aroma that they cannot resist that brings them unto Christ. And the real point for Paul is to put himself on an absolutely different plane. Christ is so far above us that he is almost like a conqueror and we're slaves. And we are so far down that we don't have anything to boast of. What we have, the good that we have to offer, comes from his grace. This is a repeated message of Christ throughout all of his epistles. He's trying to help people. This is why we have so many churches who preach that we don't have to do anything in our lives. We just have to believe in Christ and all of our salvation comes from grace. It's because Paul placed such a high emphasis on how much of the good that comes in our lives actually is the grace of Christ working through us. And I don't think anybody who believes in Jesus would disagree with that. What they would disagree with is that our choice plays no role in it. Obviously, we all know that we choose to have that grace inhabit us. That really, if, if Christians could truly get together and discuss these, these issues, there really wouldn't be that much disagreement in practice. Now, in doctrine, there seems to be a large disagreement. But in practice, we all know we have to choose to let Christ into our hearts. We all know that we have to choose to resist the temptations of the devil. And then we all believe that it is the grace of Christ that allows us to accomplish any good thing. And so there really isn't truly that much to disagree with in practice. Now, if we want to talk about, does it, are we saved by faith? Are we saved by grace? Are we saved by works? Those things seem to fade a little bit into unimportance as we actually examine the differences and how these different beliefs would affect our decisions. There's not a whole lot of difference. We all believe that we should do the right things to make good choices, follow Christ, and obey the commandments. And in chapter 3, then, we start to get some indication as to why Paul is painting himself as such a lowly minister of Christ. He says, in verse, right away in verse 1, he says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? In other words, I feel like, you know, hey, Corinthians, I, Paul, I feel like I'm having to reintroduce myself. I feel like I'm starting from scratch. Do I have to bring some letter of recommendation to prove that I'm a minister of Christ? He says in verse 2, Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. In other words, you yourselves, I started the church there. 
You yourselves are all my letter of commendation to anyone who cares to come and look at you to see the fact that you believe in Christ, to see all your righteous works, to see all the good that you've accomplished and all the things that you believe, and now all the things that you know about Christ. Everything that's been done there, that's my letter of commendation that proves that I was an apostle from Jesus. I don't need to start over, and it's unfair of you to ask that of me. And to drive this point home, the rest of chapter 3 is this extended reference to the books in the Old Testament that deal with this exact kind of idea, with, that deal with the changing nature of God's covenant. So um, I've made a big deal about a couple of scriptures, and, and these are what exactly what Paul's talking about here. The first one is Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah says, the days will come, uh, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, It goes on from there. It's verse 31 through 34. Uh, But I won't read verse 34. The point is that this time, God is going to make a new covenant, rather than the covenant of Moses, where uh, he gave them the Ten Commandments. He wrote on tablets of stone, and the covenant was not kept. It was an ineffectual covenant because, for some reason, Israel chose not to obey it. So that's what Jeremiah was describing there. He's saying, God is saying, I am going to one day make a new covenant that everyone will keep. People will know the Lord in that day because instead of being written on tablets of stone, it will be written in their hearts. What Paul is saying here is that that day has come. So in verse 3, he continues, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. So what Paul is saying is these commandments of God, you know Christ, the fact that you know him, proves that ye are members of the new covenant that was talked about by Jeremiah all those hundreds of years ago. This prophesied time has now come. The other scripture that uh, Paul was referring to is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. And this is, um, we can start in verse 26. A new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. So what Ezekiel is talking about is the same thing Jeremiah was talking about. It's interesting because these are two prophets on opposite ends of uh, Jewry. One of them lived in conquered Jerusalem, and one of them lived in Babylonian exile. We don't know exactly how much exposure they had to each other's writings and teachings. So we don't know if Paul, or if Jeremiah read Ezekiel 36, and we don't know if Ezekiel read Jeremiah 31. But the idea expressed is the same. Interestingly enough, this is already a division. These are branches splitting a part of the people of God, we know that there's another branch that's split off uh, the, the 
10 quote the so-called 10 lost tribes and perhaps they were already keeping track of scriptures by this point this was a hundred years or so after they'd been conquered and carried off by the Assyrians and it may be that they have a similar message in their scriptures we also know that in the Book of Mormon there's a similar message for one one example and there another branch that was split off one example would be Alma chapter 5 when he talks about the need to find the image of God in our own countenances to be spiritually reborn. In other words, to actually let the Spirit of God change us and let us obey the commandments rather than, like the children of Israel, disobey. So the whole point of this is one day I, God, will, will make such a covenant with you that it will actually change you. And rather than having the be a rule-bound people where you have things that are written on stone that is outside of you, your, your, the commandments that you follow by rote, they're going to be written on you in such a way that you care about them deeply and you love the Lord, and it will actually have an effect on you, and my, co- my covenant with you will work. You'll keep it because of the work that I will do. Now, in Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah goes on to say that because I forgive your sins, then that is what will it, that was that is the feeling that will prevail upon you, the believers, to such an extent that you will actually change. So these are two interesting verses or two interesting passages to go back and review as we read that Paul has referred to them. So uh, and this is wonderful, just again a poetic way of saying it. You are the epistle of Christ, and uh, you're written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Only such a poetic verse could do justice to the amazing passages from the Old Testament that he is evoking here. Okay, so uh, Paul goes on to, to compare and contrast the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So, and this is really interesting. This is where we actually get the name New Testament. Uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. And when he says, He hath made us, um, that God has, hath made us ministers, able ministers of the New Testament, Paul is again testifying that he and his companions are suitable messengers that God has for the word and the new covenant that he has to, to expose all the people to, the Jews and the Gentiles. He hath made us able ministers, meaning we are, we have been qualified for the work that we are now doing. Now, the New Testament is the exact same words. The word testamentum or testamentus that uh, the, is the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew word for covenant um, sometimes is just transliterated as testament, but it can also be translated as covenant. So it's the exact same phrase that Jeremiah used. There will, there will come a time when I will bring a new covenant. So when Christ said, this is my blood of the New Testament, drink it in remembrance of me, he was actually saying, those, those days that Jeremiah spoke of are now here. This is my blood of that new covenant that Jeremiah was talking about, where I would actually change your hearts. I would write the laws within you, and you're going to always remember me and have my spirit to be with you. That was the, that was the covenant that Christ was instituting when he put the sacrament in place. And now here's Paul saying, I, God has made me an able minister of this new covenant. So everything that I taught you is reinforcing 
the foundation that Christ put in place. And so now as we read the next few verses, a lot more of these phrases begin to make sense. When he says, The ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious. What he means is, this covenant of Moses, the ministration of death, means the law of Moses actually, first of all, it led to death. Paul talks in other places in his epistles about how the law works death in us because we are incapable. Number one, it's only pointing to Christ. It's not actually redeeming us. And so as soon as we recognize that we are not obedient to it, we have died spiritually and been separated from God. So that's why he calls it the, minist- the ministration of death. The law itself is not redemption. Number two, uh, the law didn't work. The people of Jerusalem, the ancient Israelites, did not keep the covenants that they made through Moses, right? The Mosaic covenant was not a successful covenant for the Israelites, for, for ancient Israel. And for those reasons, it's called the ministration of death, okay? So when he's, when he's calling it that, he's not actually criticizing it. He's just describing it. If the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? So the point of these two verses, this is verses 7 and 8 in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, what he's saying is, if the, if the way that the law of Moses was delivered to the was so glorious to the point that nobody could even actually look on Moses' face. It was so bright. Then, uh, then how is this new covenant that Christ has delivered us, how can it not be more glorious than that? So if the, for if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. So now read the next few verses with that context and understand when he says, even that which was made glorious... Have had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, meaning the law of Moses, much more that which remaineth is glorious. The law of Moses had an effect that was temporary. And the uh, I, I, I totally encourage you to read this chapter in another translation because uh, a lot of these words, when he says that which is done away, you're thinking, oh, he's talking about the the covenant, the Old Testament. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant is done away. No, what it actually means is the temporary benefits that come from obeying the law, if that is glorious, then the the permanent, the eternal benefits that come from obeying Christ's word are so much more glorious. It's a, It's a subtle difference, but an important one. Now, uh, I didn't mention this yet, but those chapters, the, the passages that we read, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, they have a culmination in the Sermon on the Mount. When Christ is describing, you have heard it said of, the, of those of olden time, uh, you shall not do this, but I say, do this, that was him saying, we are now shifting. Today, this shift is being made from the Old Testament to the new, the old covenant to the new. It used to be that you had your rules written on tablets of stone, but I say, write these, write these laws in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, in your heart is where the important thing is going on. You've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say, in your heart, if you're angry with someone, that's where the important thing is going on.
And so much like Christ did in the Sermon on the Mount, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is drawing a contrast between being rule-bound. A rule-bound existence in the gospel is the ministration of death and being love-bound and, and having our focuses on Christ. There is such a dramatic difference that one is called the ministration of death and one is called the ministration of life. One is called condemnation and one is called righteousness. One is called that which is done away. One is called that which remaineth forever. One is called temporary and one is called eternal. And there are people who obey the gospel because they're rule-bound. And I know that there was a time in my life that I did the same thing. I spent uh, a lot of time, I haven't talked much about my own personal history, but in my family, many members of my family have left the church. We, I, I come from a family of seven children, and we grew up in a very, very Orthodox Mormon household. And when I came home from my mission, many of my siblings and my parents were in the process of leaving the church or questioning their testimony. And I was a missionary, a return missionary, very much in a state of mind of being totally rule-bound. Now, I, I, I won't say I didn't love the gospel at all, but I will say that my focus was far more on obeying the letter of the law than on being patient and forgiving and uh, with long-suffering and prayer, believing that Christ could do all things. What I was doing was telling my family the way that they should act. Because of that, we had a period of several years where talking about religion was just not something we could do without conflict. And I don't believe that that was what God would have had me do. It, w- it took a long time for me to understand that being rule-bound is not the same thing as being love-bound. Uh, so I, I personally have a lot of uh, feelings that come up for me as I read this chapter. I can, I can really understand and internalize what Paul is saying when he, when he talks about the ministration of death and the ministration of life, the condemnation and glory, the ministration of the Spirit. One more chapter I want to mention that uh, Paul seems to be referencing when he says, he talks about the veil. Uh, Moses put a veil over his face, as you recall from the Old Testament story, when he had this glory, when he came down from Mount Sinai, the glory was so great he had to cover his face. Um, Now we're in verse 13. Moses put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, meaning the, the old covenant, but their minds were blinded. Now this is, re- this is recalling Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah's prophetic calling. God told him, tell the people, uh, make the heart of this people fat, uh, cause their eyes to be blind, cause their ears to be stopped up, cause their hearts to not understand and be willing to open themselves. And as we discussed many times that God telling Isaiah to cause their hearts was actually him telling Isaiah, declare that the hearts of this people is too fat to understand. They're too prideful to change. They're not willing to look, they're not willing to hear, and they're not willing to understand and change. And that's the same thing that's happening in verse 14. Their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. Which veil is done away in Christ? Now, interestingly enough, the phrase Old Testament here is actually um, interchangeable. The scriptures and the covenant, when he says the reading of the Old Testament, uh, what he means is the reading of the, the story of Moses. But 
you could actually say the reading of the Old Testament. And either way, he's talking about the Jews. They're still living uh, in the state that has been accurately described by, by God to Isaiah as a spiritual veil. And in verse 16, he says, uh, Their veil is upon their heart. When, it shall tur- when their heart sh- shall turn to the Lord, this veil will be taken away. Now, Paul's testimony of himself and his companions continues in chapter 4 when he says, uh, Seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. We've, remount, we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Uh, I'm reading so that we can get to verse 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of our God, should shine unto them. So remember, uh, God said to Isaiah, declare their hearts to be, de- declare their eyes to be blind, lest at any time they should be, they should open their eyes or, or understand with their hearts, and I should heal them. So this is very similar language. In fact, I would uh, invite you to read those, those verses in Isaiah chapter 6 and then uh, verse 4 of chapter 4 here and compare those. They're, they're almost the same verse. And it's God saying, as soon as they open their hearts, I will preach unto them and heal them. In verse 6, Paul continues, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts. He's talking our, the missionaries' hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, this is um, often translated as clay pots. So uh, this is something I want to talk about and consider with you just for a couple of minutes, this idea of treasure in earthen vessels. For me, the first thing that it summoned up was the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the, the He's, he's speaking specifically of scriptures here. And so he obviously didn't know about that, that one day we would discover the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it is so apropos a description of what the Dead Sea Scrolls were that it bears some discussion. Um, there's a, following Jeremiah 31, there's a verse in Jeremiah chapter 32 that discusses this um, ancient Near Eastern practice of putting a treasure in a clay pot. Uh, this is Jeremiah 32, verse 14. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these evidences, this evidence of the purchase, both which is sealed and this evidence which is open, put them in an earthen vessel that they may continue many days. So this is God actually um, telling the scribe of Jeremiah, take all these records that Israelites own this land Put them in a clay pot and bury them so that they can be preserved for a later time when Jews are going to come back into the land of Israel. Now, um, that's notable because it's a prophecy about the future, but it's also notable as a description of a practice that was fairly common, which was if you want to keep something secure, you put it in a clay pot and bury it in the earth. And that is exactly what the Essenes did who, uh, who buried the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so... It's not just treasure in the sense of gold. It's treasure in the sense of our knowledge, our writings, our scriptures. We're going to put those in clay pots and bury them. So it's in, that's, that's a fascinating uh, interpretation 
of what's going on in 2 Corinthians 4, but it's actually probably not what Paul meant. I think Paul had a couple of things in mind, and we can think of other interpretations of this very verse. But an earthen vessel, Paul was using that as a metaphor. We have our bodies, our clay pots. We are made out of clay, and uh, this has been used, this idea, this metaphor of a pot, of people being potter's clay or clay in the hands of a master potter has been used by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah, uh, talking about how we people are created of God. And Paul is using that same metaphor, saying our bodies are just earthen vessels. We're, we're just made out of clay. And the fact that we contain this marvelous treasure, this testimony, the Spirit of Christ that shines forth, the light of God shines from us. This should show you the fact that we have such humble containers for something so eternally glorious should tell you that the the glory does not come from us. So that's Paul's entire point here, is to show, of course, I don't look like much Right? Of course, I look like a slave to Christ, and that's precisely because he intended me to not look like much. I mean, uh, Paul doesn't say this here, but think about how Jesus Christ was born, born in a manger, born where the animals live. Uh, he grew up as a poor man. As, as Isaiah described it, he had no form or comeliness that we should esteem him. And uh, Paul is saying, we're troubled, in verse 8, we're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. So in saying, look, we, we suffer persecutions and tribulations of every kind, and yet we know that within us shines this eternal light. So Paul, throughout the entire lesson, the entire chapters that we're studying today, he's drawing this contrast between the way that he seems from the outside as somebody who is uh, constantly being oppressed, constantly in trouble with the law, and not very wealthy. He's a tent maker. He often has to either uh, rely on charity from others or work as a tent maker for his own meager salary. He does not look like much to the world. And to anyone who's willing to look with those eyes, he is going to never appear very impressive, and yet he has a treasure in his earthen vessel. Now, the other fulfillment of this metaphor is, off, is obviously all of us. If we're willing to receive that same light, then we have in our own humble bodies, he called us the temple of God, right? And later on, Paul is going to talk about us. We are the building of God. Then we have within our earthly tabernacle, our our earthen vessels, our clay pots, we have a treasure inside of us. This is, this is just very, very poetic and powerful language in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, continuing from verse 9, in verse 10, Paul says, "...always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body." What does that mean, that we're always bearing about the dying of the Lord Jesus. What it means is this earthen vessel that we inhabit that has been made so unexpectedly the repository of such a marvelous heavenly treasure as the light of Christ, this body 
is going to die. It, it is itself corruption because it is in the process of dying. We're always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus because we're looking forward to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So now we're skipping to verse 16. Uh, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Uh, the entire chapter is like this. It's just so wonderful to read once you understand this is what he's going for. He's talking about how, as an apostle, he has this precious cargo to deliver to every person he talks to. And he knows he is a, is a poor representative of the, the glory of the message. Nevertheless, God has promised him that this is how it is meant to be. And if, if you have any doubt about that, then just look at Jesus himself. This is the very nature of how Jesus' ministry has been carried out from the beginning. And that idea continues right in without, without uh, uh, any sort of a break into chapter 5. We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. You will remember that this is very similar imagery to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he said, we are the building of God. This is temple language, when, especially when he said, our earthly house of this tabernacle. Um, you remember that in John chapter 1, John uses the word dwelt. The, the word of God came and made himself flesh and dwelt among us. And that word is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. John was saying Christ became the temple. Christ became shared space between heaven and earth, between God and man, when he condescended to be born among us. And now here's Paul saying, if the temple of God, this shared space that we can create by making a covenant with Christ, if it's dissolved when we die, this death we're carrying within us, once it's dissolved, if we've kept it as shared space, then we have a building of God. As Jesus said, in my, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. He's also he also said, in my Father's house are many mansions. And when he says, for this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven, uh, he's expressing that sentiment that I think many of us have felt um, of wanting to be united again, sometimes feeling as if there's something missing from life that we want to be united again with our Father in heaven and feel that closeness, that ultimate connection, the love that he has for us, and the assurance that everything has a meaning. In other words, the veil, that very veil that he talked about, is oppressive to us. We carry about with us the death. That's what he means. This is the death that he means, is that we feel keenly. The, more, the closer we get to Christ, the more keenly we feel that separation from God. In other words, in this we groan. And he continues in that vein for several verses. It's not until uh, verse 10 he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now you will hear echoes of Alma chapter 41 from that verse. It's talking about how there will be a restoration in all things, there will be a restoration of our body, and there will also be a restoration of good for that which is good. So I, I would uh, recommend, if, you want, if you're interested, you could compare uh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 to 
Alma chapter 41, when it talks about the restoration of all things. Now, the other verse I would like to discuss in chapter 5 is verse 12. Paul says, We commend not ourselves again unto you. In other words, what I said earlier about wanting a letter of commendation, I'm not trying to do that by all this explaining. I'm not trying to present to you some justification of why I, Paul, am here talking to you, the Corinthians. But I'm not, so I'm not commending myself again unto you, but I'm trying to give you occasion to glory on our behalf. I want to make you proud that you've heard our message, that you have chosen to be followers of what we've taught you. Okay, so that's what he means. We commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. In other words, there are going to be people, there are people among you even now who are paying attention to teachers who look more impressive. Those people who may be better speakers, better public speakers, they may be wealthier, they may not have had to go through as much suffering as I have, Paul, as I've gone through. And so you, I'm, I'm trying to give you ammunition when you're talking to those people that you can understand. I'm proud of Paul. I'm proud to have Paul as my teacher because he reflects the ministry of Christ. Paul, even though he doesn't appear like much, he's actually following in, the, in that very thing, in the footsteps of Jesus, who didn't appear like much and yet had everything. He is a treasure in an earthen vessel. So that's why Paul is, he, he, this is him explicitly saying, this is my whole point in trying to testify of my own value as, a, as an apostle, not to glory of myself, not to commend myself to you, but to give you something that you can use to glory in our behalf. In other words, that you can be proud that you've listened to a true minister rather than somebody who is doing this for his own gain. And reading, it was in reading chapter 6 that it finally occurred to me that if you were uh, an apostle trying to get a recalcitrant congregation to accept, accept your message and accept that you were a faithful minister, um, the fact that you can't give up makes you very much like a parent, right? Because parents cannot give up on their children, and they can't say to the child, well, since you won't listen to me, I'm going to send somebody else that you will listen to. You basically have to say to your child, look, I'm called upon to testify of these things to you. The fact that you don't like to listen to me and the fact that I've given you some harsh sayings and that we've had our differences doesn't absolve you from having to accept the truth that I'm teaching you because it is my duty, it's a sacred obligation before God to come before you and teach you these things. And I can't think of any relationship that more closely resembles the relationship that Paul has with the Corinthians than parent and child. And I wish I could read all of chapter 6 to you because it's such a powerful testimony of the love that Paul has shown and everything, all the suffering that he's been willing to go through just to bring the, the truth in a way that can be believed to those that he loves. So, and I'll give a couple of examples. Giving no offense, verse 3, giving no offense of in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, and he goes on and on. But 
but Love Unfeigned is where I wanted to stop. Because you remember what it means by imprisonments. Paul was put in prison. We've read several, uh, in the book of Acts, we've read several incidences of that. In tumults, Paul caused a riot just about everywhere he went. In labors, Paul traveled and he wrote and he prayed. In watchings and fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned. As we study the book of Acts, we saw examples of every single one of those things. And in verse 11, he calls unto them, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. In verse 13, he says, Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. In other words, the, the amount of love that I've allowed to fill my heart for you has made me do things I never would have believed myself capable of. And now I'm inviting you to receive from me my, all, of the, all of the rebukes that I've sent, all of the teachings that I've sent. If it so be that you're called upon to repent, I invite you to receive that and be humble enough to actually let those words enter into your hearts rather than to have your pride block it from you. And and, uh, as I said before, I don't want you to be blind to the light that I'm trying to reveal unto you, the light of Christ. And the rest of chapter 6 from 14 to the end is a passage that you've probably heard quoted many times, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, a lot of people use this as an example about marriage, right? That you shouldn't marry someone who doesn't believe as you believe. And that is one possible interpretation of what he's saying. But what he's really saying is, don't have an expectation that by getting together with people who don't accept Christ, especially in the days of ancient Rome, where there, today we have a, a Judeo-Christian tradition that is basically the building block of all our society, but back then they had no such thing. And what he's saying is, if what you try to do is create some sort, if you have the expectation that you can create some sort of societal agreements with idolaters, you, it's not going to be them which change. It's going to be you that are going to change. You're going to change your beliefs and fall into their trap. Much has happened with the ancient Israelites who had these Canaanites surrounding them, and if they intermixed with them, it wasn't them bringing the Canaanites up to their spiritual level. It was them falling down to the spiritual level of the Canaanites which surrounded them, of the idolaters that surrounded them. So a call to avoid being unequally yoked is a, uh, is a plea to avoid allowing your own faith to be diminished, to be diluted. Now finally in chapter 7, Paul says, uh, we get a little bit of good news. Paul says that he's actually proud of their, their conduct. He knows that Titus has gone to see them, and that what Titus found was a repentant people. And so Paul, in this chapter, is where we get the idea of what we call today godly sorrow. This is where we're first exposed to that idea. So I want to say, before we end today, I want to say a few words about godly sorrow. And And to say that godly sorrow has nothing whatsoever to do with the feeling that someone has when they're found out. That is the horror that comes, that is the horror of shame that comes with having people know that you've been involved in a sinful or a shameful behavior. And the fear that comes from having uh, the glory of men taken away as they see 
your terrible choices, whatever they might be. So we all have our secret sins that we don't care to expose to public scrutiny, right? And this is this what Paul is saying is when you feel godly sorrow, that is not the feeling that you feel. Uh, I want to give I want to tell a brief story, and this was in my last state conference. A man was called to give a talk, and he got up, and he talked about his addiction to alcohol and the, the terrible effects that it had in his family. And uh, in particular, I remember him almost going into tears when he described how he had to go to his daughter as part of his recovery and ask her to describe to him how it felt when he stole from her. And so he's in front of the whole stake. He's willing, obviously, he must have had, uh, he, somebody must have come to him and say, would you be willing to share this? And he was willing to do it. He was willing to expose in front of everyone in the stake the terrible choices that he'd made. And you could tell, I mean, I remember praying for this man, you know, Lord, please forgive him, help him to receive the light of Christ. I know he's already been through, obviously, he's probably been for years in his recovery, but... I was just praying for his soul for him to receive any amount of comfort because he was still feeling remorse however long it had been for what he had done to his daughter. Now, I do believe that man had been forgiven already, right? And yet, the idea that he had caused someone he loved pain was what was hurting him and not the idea that people might find out. In fact, he was happy to have people find out because then they might be able to avoid a similar mistake. This was godly sorrow, as much as I'd ever seen it. The, the idea that uh, I'm not afraid of losing the honors of men, but the only thing that scares me is that I would lose the approval of God. And in so doing, he gained the honor of God. I mean, I know that many people were affected as I was. Watching this man, I was praying for him to have the Spirit. I was, I was praying for him to be forgiven. I was praying for him to know what to say next. I was praying for him to be supported in his talk and in his life, and I felt such compassion for him. And granted, I'd never been affected by his addiction in my experience with him. I, the, the first time I met him was seeing him speak in, in state conference that day. So for some in his family or among his friends, it might have been more difficult. But for me, I felt such mercy and love and respect for someone who is willing to expose their own weakness. Now this is, if, you, if you've been paying attention, this is the same thing that Paul has been willing to do. He's showing his own weakness throughout the entire letter to the Corinthians, showing, look, I know <laughs> I am not a representative of the light that is within me. I am an earthen vessel, but the light within me will not be denied. And that's the point. So uh, as we try to be reconciled to God, as we try to remove this blindness, as we try to avoid a rule-bound mindset, instead adopting a love-bound mindset, as we try to recognize that within us, within this earthly and corruptible vessel of our bodies that holds within it the death of Christ every day, as we try to hold there this everlasting light of Christ, and instead of adopting the ministration of death, we can adopt the ministration of the Spirit. And through that, through the grace of Christ, we can accomplish anything. We can do all things. We can remove our blindness. And we can begin to receive, as Paul received, the pureness, the long-suffering, the kindness, and most of all, that love unfeigned. 
as we are willing to feel that godly sorrow that worketh in us repentance to salvation. So the challenge is ours. If there is someone in our lives who is, like Paul, a minister, uh, a, a treasure in an earthen vessel, we have the prophets and apostles, we have our priesthood leaders, those are our ministers that are sending us messages that may be hard at times for us to hear, but it is those very messengers that if we heed, can remove the veil from our eyes and reveal the glory of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.